What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. All right, welcome to the podcast. I'm here in uh, Sarah Vandernoot's uh, studio basement. Uh, she's the founder and designer of Vanderjacket. Uh, Sarah, thank you for making the time this afternoon for hosting. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yes. It's fun. And we're kind of neighbors. We are. <laughs> yeah. So I saw you in, was it uh, Mountain Outside Magazine? Is that where Mountain you're? Mountain Town Magazine. Mountain Town Magazine. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I looked at the, the website and the company and we use uh, similar uh, fabrics a little bit, but to different ends. And I just thought the design was great. And then after we had talked um, briefly on the phone about your journey to your apparel line, I thought it was um, encouraging that it was similar, but just wanted to hear the story of Vanderjacket. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I love telling it. Uh, <laughs> we can start at different points, but um, yeah. Where do you want to start? Um, how about just the idea for the jacket itself and then we can see where that goes. Yeah. Um, so my dad, he ran for Nike in the eighties and, uh, um, I grew up in Oregon and so he always had cool Nike stuff, retro Nike stuff, you know, it wasn't at the time, but it is now. And we just grew up around a lot of athletic gear and kind of the more innovative, um, scrappy startup stuff that Nike used to do. Um, and so I always had that in my background and then, uh, being in Colorado, um, I'm a runner. And, uh, when I was pregnant with my first daughter, I just got too big. I did not have a lot of jackets and, uh, I was still trying to run every day. It was the winter and I made myself a couple jackets, uh, running jackets that I thought would be good to run in. And, um, at the time I was, um, making some clothing designs and selling them at flea markets, but I didn't do anything athletic. It was just kind of random, you know, one-offs and, um, more like thermal jackets, like a winter coat, would you um, say, or, well, at the flea markets when yeah. I was selling, yeah. Oh, it'd be like some shorts and this dress okay. and then this shirt and then this All kinds of crazy song. shoe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, whatever. And uh, it was kind of before flea markets took off in Denver. So there was a lot more, um, the bar was lower, let's just say. (laughs) So um, I kind of, I was doing that already. And then um, made a few running jackets for myself. Had my daughter and um, I, you know, I mildly used them. So I put them out with some other clothes and they just flew off the racks and i was getting women the rest of the day coming back saying do you have any more of those jackets cuz i saw so and so and i know you just sold this do you have more of those and uh so that was surprising to me um just to be asked for something that i made like that and then just running that week it it occurred to me you know a running jacket is so needed in Colorado. Any jacket is. You, It's a layering style in Colorado. The weather changes so fast. And a jacket is so practical, but it's also really personal. And people want to show their style at the same time. It's A jacket is a real fashion piece in Denver. And people are going to buy one every season. Um, you, some people are. 
and they're going to still keep the the ones that they have that are older and then they're going <laughs> to yeah. layer them all together and it's practical but it's also style um so i just decided you know one thing i learned in um in college and uh i have an arts degree one thing uh my professors always said is like just be really specific about what you're going to do like uh try not to be all over the place you know that's confusing that's confusing for people and really what they were saying is build build your brand as an artist and you know, I guess I kind of took that and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm just going to focus in on jackets. I guess I'll just do jackets. And maybe if I just do that, I'll get really good. And it was at the time when a lot of people were wearing, were wearing puffy coats, which mm. I love. I still have puffy coats and a lot of people still wear them now. But in the early, you know, like 2010-ish, there wasn't as much variation on the puffy coat. It was all just kind of like everyone was pretty much wearing the same kind of North Face um, or Columbia, like, puffy coat, which is fine. But there was a real opportunity to do, you know, original jackets and um, just offer something different. And people really caught that vision. Um, so I've just grown my business really slowly since then. Um, and for some reason, I thought I would get really tired of, just doing jackets and making originals, but I'm coming up on my 700th original. I just, I think in terms of uh, capital, uh, the capital I have is creativity. Mm -hmm. um, for some reason, that is un untappable. Or, you know, I, or, or I guess, what should I say? It's, um, it's just an endless supply. I thought I would get bored and I haven't, so... I'm going to keep going. <laughs> yeah. There's some, um, there's something to be said for that narrowing of the focus. Mm -hmm. And in my um, struggles, my improvements with ADHD, mm. some of the things I've read have said that if you can go, not all the time, but super detailed, like as an exercise, mm -hmm. then magic starts happening because there is the familiar, but then, because you know things so well that it gives you a, a clarity that um, doesn't come from spreading your chips all over the board. Yeah. And um, mm -hmm. I was making breakfast today and I just had quiet, slow intention. And I was like, mm -hmm. I can't remember the last time I just focused on one thing like yeah. this. And I think it, it yields amazing improvements too. Yeah, I, I agree. I think for me personally, that has really worked. Um, one story that really stuck with me that an artist friend shared, she lived in New York for a time and she worked in fashion and there was one guy who was like working all of New York fashion shows and he was a button photographer. That's all he did, button photographer. And I bet they were incredible. Oh, and he was killing it. I mean, he was living an incredible life. And I think there is something said for if you can be disciplined to focus on the one thing, there is a freedom in that because, as you said, you'll be a master of that one thing. So, um, yeah. <laughs> I once watched a documentary on Helvetica, the font. <laughs> oh, you did? <laughs> Whoa, I need to cue that up. <laughs> I need to cue that up. Can I tell people that? And they just look at me and they say, what did you just watch? And uh -huh. I, but it was amazing because it wasn't mm -hmm. just 
the typography and the letters, they showed mm-hmm. where it was used and how the font looked. But, but that, enough about that. But mm-hmm. um, when you were, let's go back to the jackets. So okay. when you were designing the jackets, did you take pieces of jackets and said, I, I want to make this better? Or with your creative mind, mm-hmm. was it, I'm just going to sketch this and go that way? You know, it's so funny, especially because I have, uh, my degree is in art. I went to Baylor for fashion design mm. and I realized my mom taught me sewing construction so well. It felt like review. And also I was starting to get jealous of art friends who were in, you know, we'd go hang out and they'd have some assignment and I'd ask them about it and I'd feel like jealous. So I switched to fine art and um, uh, to answer your question, I thought because of that background, you know, I would start by sketching and really I don't. Hmm. Um, I, I, I like to take a pair of scissors and just start cutting. And when I first, uh, started making my jacket designs, um, I, you know, I got a few jackets that I liked and I also got a few patterns that I liked and I just really studied them and, you know, focused in on why do I like this? Why do I like this? Um, cut up the jackets, looked at the patterns looked at the paper patterns and just tried to um, reduce it down to the common denominator of like, why do I Hmm. appreciate these jackets? And then also, you know, you, at least for me and you know, the way it goes is you're limited. Something's going to limit you. And at the time it was, I was limited by skill. I was actually really afraid to do zippers. And so I started just doing like pullovers, um, Hmm. And I did that for like a year and a friend of mine was like, you should really put a zipper in. And I was kind of like, I know, I know, <laughs> but it scares me. <laughs> and, uh, it's like my skill was limiting me. Um, but you know, to push past the fear of putting in zippers, obviously it's been really good. So I put in over, you know, five, 600 or so. Okay. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, I want to make sure I'm clear on this. Every jacket you make is unique and different. Yes. Yeah. It's an original. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. So a lot of times, and, and I love this because, um, people are so fascinating and I love interacting with people. Um, a lot of times someone will come into my tent, like at a post-race event or, you know, a sports exhibit and they'll start talking out loud and they'll say, Oh, so you take, vintage jackets and and they're working out in their head what I'm doing and they're telling me and it um and you cut them up and you put them together and it's like uh I have to kind of like let them come to like wind (laughs) down with their conversation (laughs) with them with their self because you know people process verbally sometimes and then I say well I know why you think that because I use vintage fabrics but I I use unused fabric. So if I can find a vintage that's unused locally, I love it and I'll work it in. But I don't upcycle. I don't Hmm. cut up old ones and then start new. Uh, To be honest, I have mad respect for people who upcycle. But that would like double the price of a jacket because um, then you're deconstructing the one and then you're constructing the other one. So... um, what I've found is there's actually enough excess vintage fabric in the Denver area that I can just use unused fabric. And where do you find it? So you're talking on rolls or cut yards, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, 
some of my pieces of fabric that I get, it's like a half a yard. Okay. And sometimes, like uh, recently this week, I got a huge bolt of fabric and it was, it's probably 200 yards. I mean, wow. I, I don't even know. I didn't measure it, but it was a good deal and it was excess in Denver. And uh, a lot of times the vintage, you can hunt for it, at, you know, garage sales, estate sales, um, not to stereotype, but most people who hold on to that stuff are elderly women and um, you can find it. So fabric people are funny because they just, they kind of hoard. <laughs> And so um, I have bags of swatches. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Fabric people, um, you have to work against your urge to hoard. <laughs> so when someone decides to purge finally after years or they pass away and, you know, they have an estate sale or something, you can find it that way or just at the arc or whatever, you know. But I also just use local fabric from uh, local fabric makers, uh, from people who have received a donation from some company, excess fabric. So the fabric I usually buy is found on the secondary market. It's mm. it's neglected in some way or another. But I also go to just Colorado Fabrics too. So, Is there any traceability on a vintage piece? Is there like a, a manufacturing tag that says this is from 1972 and it was made um, there? Or is it all just loose? Well, sometimes if you're lucky and on the salvage, they'll print, they'll print the name of the company. Okay. And there's never a date. Uh, well, actually, sometimes if you get like a real vintage piece and uh, somebody bought it at a fabric store in the 60s or 70s, the pin with the original like price is still on there. Wow. Which is so cool. And you're like, okay, they paid... I don't know, $2 for this in 1960 or whatever. And I'm paying like $1 now, like because it's <laughs> neglected, but it's awesome. You know, um, that occasionally happens, but it's really fun if uh, the company is printed on the salvage edge. Mm. Mm -hmm. Doesn't happen too much though. <laughs> that, if that information was available, that would be a compelling part of the, the jacket story. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So how do the fabrics from the 70s rate to something modern like a, um, like your standard poly blend or fleece? What do you see? Mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. is it better? Is it different? Worse? What do you, what's your impression of it? Uh, well, I mean, I'm not an expert with fabric and mm -hmm. textiles, and some people really are. So I don't want to say anything wrong. But it's, it's all polyester. Like if you buy a polyester track jacket today from Nike you know, at the outlet, uh, or downtown or whatever, it's polyester. So that is a, it's a man-made, um, fabric, but it's kind of a catch-all. The thing about the old polyester and the new is that they found better ways to weave it. Oh. Uh, sometimes there'll be a recycled content in the newer stuff cause they know how to do that now, which is awesome. Also, like spandex, lycra, those are products of like the 80s. Well, I, I could be wrong, but I think they're products of the 80s. So that's worked into the newer. Um, there will be like a blend where it's like spandex, polyester. And you know, I mean, now there's like bamboo or whatever. I, I don't get bamboo fabric, but there's just more 
technology, fabric advances have happened. But at the core, we're talking about the same thing. So the old polyester, it may not have the stretch, and I would reject that. Like okay. I try to get really stretchy double knits that people would actually want to run in. Because otherwise, some of the old polyester is itchy and abrasive. Like leisure suits. Yes. So, you know, um, when I started out, I would make jackets like that. But over time, I realized even if someone likes the way this looks, they're not going to run in it. It has to be soft. It has to be touchable. Um, there are fabrics out right now that are so touchable and so soft. And that's the bar. Everyone wants that. So when I mix in a vintage, um, it either has to have an underlayer of an, of a modern fabric that is soft to the touch on your skin, or it has to be a really high quality vintage that had the stretch already was soft already. Um, yeah. <laughs> <coughs> well, I mean, they're just beautiful pieces and, uh, I tried one on for the first time. And for me, I love that the, the sleeves were, the appropriate length mm. and were actually um, too long, but not in a bad way mm-hmm. so that I could stretch or tie my shoes if I was running. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I wanted to go back to how you construct it. It sounds like you're almost sculpting a jacket. <laughs> you're taking the pieces and seeing what works. And um, mm-hmm. that based on what my limited experience is, is like an artist putting together elements as mm-hmm. opposed to just throwing a sketch, cut, cut, cut. And so, I think that's I like that. fair to say, I because I do start my jackets with scissors and just by cutting the fabrics rather than sketching. Um, like on my Instagram, anytime you see a sketch or whatever, that's post making the jacket. I then go back <laughs> and, and sketch it. I actually don't work that way. That's I showing your work. Yeah. Right? I got the answer, Professor. But... Right, right. It, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I used to hate that kind of showing the the answer. I just know what's right. Right. Because <laughs> um, I love to draw, but for some reason, yeah, it's more of a sculptural process for me. And uh, like to your point, I've decided that for my, for a Vander jacket, I always do a raglan sleeve, which is a sleeve that um, it doesn't have a seam rolling over the top of your shoulder. It, um, it kind of all seems combined in your neck. And the reason for that, for example, is because everyone has a different shoulder edge. Mm -hmm. And once you put that seam in, you're drawing a line in the sand about who can wear this jacket and who can't. And so, for example, I mean, that's one design element that I always use in my typical like soft shell Vander jacket because it needs to be something that... um, anyone could try on and look good in and not, you don't feel like, Oh, my, my shoulders are way tight or it, you know, for petite women, uh, this shoulder edge is falling way off of my, my shoulder. Um, yeah. So it's trial and error, but some things I, I feel like make a very specific style or I guess I should say some, some, um, design choices, I always do for Vander jacket, and so that's what kind of makes them different. What are those choices? Is it something that is just how you feel, or can you actually articulate what those are? Uh, well, you know, it's good to hear what people tell me a Vander jacket looks like. Oh, you know, to, the to your feedback. Customers. Yeah. So um, I would say the raglan sleeve on a soft shell Vander jacket, 
and then the very um, kind of like cut out pockets on the side that are a little bit high, um, that kind of C shape that comes in. Uh, I started doing that style because I wanted to be able to be out there running, get my hand into my pocket really fast to get my phone. So I didn't want to zip. I didn't want to have to zip. Mm. But at the same time, a phone is an $800 thing and everyone's running with one, you know, more or less. Uh, that's the price. It's got to be really safe. So the pocket entry has to be high and the pocket has to be deep so you can run with it and your phone is safe. But at the same time, you get your hand in really fast. So that's another feature that I think is really Vander jacket. <laughs> My uh, Brooks running jacket has mm -hmm. a uh, thin tooth invisible zipper side pocket that is just barely enough for my hand to get in while I'm holding the phone. Oh. And so the mm -hmm. past three months, it's been so cold. Mm -hmm. And so I have to reach over. And again, first world white guy problems. Right? I, <laughs> right, can't, right. I can't get my phone out of my jacket. Mm -hmm. But still, the functionality, like as you're describing that, mm -hmm. I'm picturing the run I did just six hours ago mm -hmm. where I couldn't get that thing in. And mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure I got it zipped up. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to fall out and then yeah. turn off, uh, map my run. I got to get in there again. And so, yeah, it's just, mm -hmm. I love elegant, hundred percent functional, simple solutions to problems like that. Oh, me too. Me too. I think that drives design forward. And actually I think that is what is so compassionate about design. When you're thinking about a person's problems and you're thinking, how can I solve that? And I, you know, I get excited about my jackets and I try to make them beautiful and I love colors and I love style. Um, you know, as much as a suburban mom can love style in Colorado, but, um, <laughs> the style's amazing. There'll be pictures on the episode. It's really yeah. cool. Oh, thanks. Um, but yeah, I think at, at the core, a good design is a compassionate design that's thought through the problems that might come up from your customer's perspective. Yeah. 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 And you can't solve all of them. And uh, that's what's tricky because um, you're going to exclude some people every time you make a choice. Um, but but it's good to be aware. <laughs> it's really good to be aware. I've never heard that articulated that way, mm. that you'll exclude people by making a choice. Yeah. And with design, I would think that its intent is to be positive, but to have the awareness that there's an unintended consequence of each choice is fascinating. Mm -hmm. I've never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of wrestled with that. Um, I made what I call my 5280 windbreaker last year. I made a run of a hundred and it was the first line of jackets that I didn't personally sew. Um, they were made in Denver by Colorado contract cut and sew. Was that hard to let go of that? Uh, no, it was really freeing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a perfectionist. I'm okay. really not. And, and, and they did a beautiful job. It was better than me because they are perfectionists and I'm not. Um, but it was my design. You know, every part of it was my design. And I did a one size fits all because, uh, I mean, this is kind of like, boring um manufacturing stuff but well, not to me this is okay I'm, <laughs> okay <laughs> I'm I, I, I really wanted to try to have someone else make my design you know that was kind of a goal for me and i just wanted to learn from the experience right and um 
I could not afford to do, you know, even two sizes of, mm. of the jacket. I had to do a one size fits all. I couldn't afford to do the soft shells I normally do. So I knew it had to be a windbreaker. But I really just wanted to figure out how does this work. So I made a one size fits all windbreaker. And I mean, one size fits most is more, you know, the way that people should label that. And I knew I would be excluding certain people, um, particularly people who are very petite um, and people who are, they just have more mass to them or more height. And uh, that was hard because, you know, I come from a family where there are some really tall people in my family and I know that the jacket I made doesn't really fit them. Mm. And so, you know, there are people I love who would be excluded by this design I'm making. Um, so it's kind of, it's interesting to make originals and even custom jackets for a specific person and make it just for them and then make something really general, which might generally fit everyone, but it will exclude some people. Um, both are a learning experience. So how did you arrive on that one size? for your 5280 yeah um well i actually uh i took a traditional kimono design which is shaped like if you can imagine a plus sign okay okay so the the windbreaker is a plus sign basically uh that's the pattern so um it's a kimono style it's a plus sign and what you do is you fold that plus sign in half so then you have the sleeves coming mm. out and you have the torso coming down. One of the sides of that plus sign that's folded in half is slid up the top. And there's a circle in the middle. And then you put the hood on. So I knew that if I did a very loose, free-flowing design like a kimono, um, I would naturally include a lot of people. Plus, I felt like the style was headed that way. I saw a lot of uh, more free-flowing jackets on Instagram and uh, like in Vogue and stuff. And I felt like, okay, we're moving this way. Things aren't so fitted. Maybe it's a good time to do a really boxy, kind of more Asian looking um, windbreaker. Um, and then for the sleeves, I decided to make them extremely long hmm. because if they're long on everybody, no one's excluded. <laughs> good point. So, um, and really I... I've never heard people complaining much about long sleeves um, because everyone just cuffs them back. I've heard people complaining about sleeves that are too short, <laughs> but who doesn't want to pull their sleeve over their hand when they're cold, you know? So I knew if I made them really long, um, we could reach more people. Um, and then also cyclists are always bending forward, reaching forward. Uh, so a long sleeve on a windbreaker for them is perfect, you know? So that's how I made those choices. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when you're starting to sculpt a jacket, mm -hmm. what's the shortest amount of time it's taken you to arrive at a design and what's the, the longest? Because mm -hmm. you're dealing with all different fabrics and it's sort of your vision of what you want it to look like. Yeah. How long would that take? Uh, my average amount of time per jacket is about five hours if something okay. doesn't go wrong. I think I made one jacket in four hours once. Um, I mean, that was fast. If you get an incredible piece of fabric and it's just so crazy and wild that you don't even really need to introduce a design element, 
because the fabric just speaks for itself. Sure. It's like, I'm just going to go, I'm going to do this fabric, the whole jacket through, maybe a contrast reflective, and we're good. Like, I don't want to mess with the beauty of this fabric. So, um, but a lot of times I, I mix it up and add extra. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what it feels like. Right? Yeah. It's like, this is, okay, yeah. I have a vision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did your 5280 windbreakers have zippers in them? Okay, yes. Okay. So they zip up the front. Okay. Um, did you put in a zipper in a prototype? Did, was that part of your I, fear I did. conquering? Oh, okay. oh um, yeah. So I conquered my fears about zippers probably like three <laughs> or four years ago. Because after you do 100 or 200 zippers, yeah, it's fine. Good. It's fine, yeah. Um, but yeah, I had to put one in a prototype and... It's slippery, like <laughs> parachute fabric. Nylon is slippery. Oh, yeah, geez. yeah, but uh, a good machine really makes a difference. So, <laughs> all my stuff is one size for men and one size for women. Oh and yeah. I had taken a distribution of neck sizes oh. to try to get in that window. I figured mm-hmm. if I sampled twenty, I think it was twenty five men, twenty five women, just for the neck, and I said, well. Mm. Because somebody had given me advice about managing SKUs and if you oh. have a product and then you've got sizes and then SKUs and then stocking and orders and you're like, okay, at the start, mm-hmm. let's keep it simple. But it was yeah. just a simple average of, <clears throat> of neck sizes is how I landed on that. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I feel your pain. <laughs> I feel your pain. And then at the end of the day, you're just making a decision. Like you just have to decide and go right. with it. And yeah face the consequences that's part of the risk right yeah i mean you can be an entrepreneur and take all on all kinds of risks but if you're a type of entrepreneur who's actually manufacturing stuff that's a risk in itself just what's that final product going to be uh so (laughs) (laughs) well you're at uh, colorado contract cut and sew right Mm -hmm. um they were instrumental in my success Mm -hmm. um bill and jane patterson and i got introduced to Bill, I can't remember where, but it was at the time in my life when I was using this as working through a struggle, but I wasn't mm. believing in the product or myself. And I mm. went to Bill hoping he would tell me it was a bad idea so I could quit. No kidding. Yeah. And he and I, I haven't seen him for a couple of years, but mm. he, he, I owe a lot of what this is to him just by suggestions and yeah, he's dealing with hundred windbreakers. He's got containers of stuff mm-hmm. coming in. It's a real cut and sew business. Yeah. And this guy, I had some homemade prototypes, and he took an hour and a half out of his day mm. to sit and talk with me and wow. look at it. And he had mm. advice that ranged from trademarks to uh, colors and naming and all this stuff. Wow. And he treated me with such respect mm. that like I've never forgotten that. And so wow. it's it's. I thought it was another amazing coincidence that we're both connected through those guys. Absolutely. Don't you want to be like that? I mean, yeah, yeah. You meet someone like that and it's like, whoa, I want to be this wealth of knowledge and generosity too, you know? And, um, yeah, I never met him. He's Um, retired, right? Yeah. So, uh, Lindsay DeBolt is the president and she took it over. She bought it, uh, but worked with him for a while. And I've met his daughter, Pam. Yes. And uh, oh, I just love the people there. And Lindsay, 
she's just my hero. I mean, when it comes to women in the city of Denver, Lindsay DeBolt, no doubt. And she's a runner, so we have <laughs> something in common. Um, but I love working with them. Yeah. Yeah, just I love notch. hearing your story. Yeah. 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 Uh. And Bill had told me a story about his son that I don't have his permission to say it, but just mm. this connection about I felt that we hit it off in that similar way. Mm. And he opened up about some stuff, and it was just, mm. again, it transcended apparel. Mm-hmm. And it was just a connection with an amazing individual that wow. I just was, if it didn't go any further than that moment, I was mm-hmm. happy that I met him and ran into him. Absolutely. That's great. Wow. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I love reflective fabrics too. I mean, switch mm-hmm. back to like the actual, yeah. like I will go, mm-hmm. um, I'll see the, like the uh, workers at the airport or the, yeah. the winter road crew guys wearing the like on your jacket right yeah. now that bright yeah. fluo and that stripe mm-hmm. and I just I'm, I love that color and especially mm-hmm. the reflective that's something that I just if I sort of let my mind wander on stuff to make it's like yeah. what can I do with that like, seriously yeah I could like here's an idea if we mm-hmm. could make a pair of like men's dress pants with a fluo oh that'd be so and, cool like a <laughs> Reflective piping down the side. That would be so cool. I would sacrifice a pair of pants for some prototypes. That would be pretty cool. That would be really cool. And not that hard. I mean. Really? Yeah. I don't sew. Yeah. (laughs) I don't sew many pants. I'll be honest. The pants part is hard. (laughs) I could put them on your your tux pants for you. I'll find a pair. Yeah. But I love learning about sewing. And Mm -hmm. my friend Linda has educated Mm -hmm. me on that. So I can tell like an interlock and a serge and... and Mm -hmm. Um, I'll go into a clothing store and I'll turn mm-hmm. it inside out and look at the seams. I don't know exactly what I'm looking at, but uh-huh. I can kind of tell if it's single needle or all the other stitches. And it's yeah. just, it's a fun world. Like, and, and fabrics are great because you can touch them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You can touch them and it's, it's wonderful. Actually, you mentioned something um, that reminds me of another limitation I had when I was starting. I never sewed on a serger. Oh. I had, okay, I was out, uh, I grew up in Bend, Oregon, and I was out at my parents' house for Christmas, and uh, we went to a Goodwill, my mother and I, and I saw, like, kind of a hybrid um, industrial and domestic machine from the 1960s called a Belvedere Adler, and uh, it was at the Goodwill. And you could tell it was in good shape, you know. Um, but they had they had it for $29.99. And I am really scrappy. And I thought that was overpriced. And just for that, it's like, well, I'm not going to buy it because it's overpriced. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and my mom was, like, really urging me, like, you should get this machine. You should get this machine. And uh, so finally she paid half because I was, you know, too chintzy to get it myself. So my first 400, 500, let's see, 400 or, yeah, 400 something jackets, I'm originals were made on that machine. And I did not have a serger. I don't know how to serge. I haven't ever done that. And so I always do kind of a mock French seam, and, uh, it, which is kind of like uh, what runs up the side of your, uh, your Levi's jeans. Okay. So it's kind of like that, but I would do a mock French seam where you um, kind of turn it 
turn it over. It's not a true French seam, but because I didn't have a serger. So I just had, you have to work with what you have, you know? Right. And um, so that's what I, I did. And I think that's kind of an underlying part of the business too. Like I work with the fabric that's in Denver. I've never looked anywhere else for it. And sometimes that limitation is freeing because it's like, okay, here are the goods. What can we make? You know? So not having a serger, um, it, it has made my jackets look different on the inside too. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I think it's a really subtle point of your focus, right? You're, I've had this conversation last week where perfection is the enemy of completion. Right? Mm. And I would say that your jacket design is almost in a way disconnected a little bit from the fabric. Because you've got the, the functionality of the jacket, mm -hmm. but you're not 100% married to it's black and reflective. You can mm -hmm. pivot and shift, and it's cool to hear that you disassociate those to some extent, and then mm -hmm. you're not waiting for the most perfect thing. You're like, hey, I can accomplish something, mm -hmm. but it's is it exactly what I want? No, but it's better than not having it done at all, and it's cool... Yeah. I love how you articulate this. It's just really oh. cool to hear. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and people surprise me too because sometimes uh, a jacket will just not turn out the way I hoped, you know? And uh, What do you do with it at that point? Well, there have been a few times where it's like I don't even want someone buying or I don't even want anyone wearing this. You sure. Know? I don't want anyone wearing this at all. <laughs> Uh, there have been a few times like that, and I can't even remember what I did with them, but let's just say they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't remember. And then there are some where it's like, <clears throat> well, you know, my goal is always to make a jacket that I don't want to sell. That's my goal. I want to make a jacket that's so cool, I wish I could keep hmm. it. And if I do that, I've succeeded. If it's hard for me a little bit to... Uh, to let it be for someone else, then we've, we've hit the mark. And of course, sometimes you don't hit the mark and you make the jacket and you like it, but it's, you know, it's, you're okay with, you're okay with it. You're going to put it on the rack. It's okay that your name's on it, but maybe it's not what you hoped it would be. And then it's the first thing to sell. Someone loves it. It's like they, and they say, <laughs> it's like you made this for me. And I think, oh, good. Well, this whole thing is redeemed. <laughs> you know, um, I guess that's what I love about people. You just don't know what the response will be. So, yeah, yeah, it's good. They're they're absolutely right. Yeah. 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 So do you still have your early prototypes? Do you have some of the first things that you've made, like the ugly ducklings, the first pancakes? Oh. I, ha I run in I have about seven that I run in. And I try to be really hard on them to see how they age and fall apart and stuff. Um, so I have some that are, I think, in the 300s. Mostly, I, I don't have anything really, really early on. I'm not sentimental at all. Hmm. Some of my friends have some really early jackets, like from the 100s. But, yeah. Me too. I have friends okay. that ride in the first pre-production prototypes of the oh. warm front. I'm like, guys, oh. would you please? Yeah. You're killing me here. Like, this right. is... <laughs> We've come a long way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You, you and your iPhone 3, come on. Right, right. <laughs> like, totally. Like, I will just give totally. it to you. Like, no, 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 I'm good. Like, yeah. 
yeah. But I guess if it doesn't wear out, that's that's great. That's so. a positive too. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, I just blanked on a question. I'll come back yeah. to it. Um, oh, I know what it was. Mm-hmm. So when I first started this podcast, yeah. it was about finding entrepreneurs in similar or any venture. Mm-hmm. And the question I wanted to always ask was, how close did you come to quitting mm-hmm. and walking away? Mm-hmm. And and in this case in particular, because you were both home-based businesses and making this up yeah. as we go along, mm-hmm. and I've had three or four times I've wanted to quit, but mm-hmm. did you ever get to that point? What were the circumstances? And then you've kept going, and what happened mm-hmm. that propelled you on? Yeah, I, I can think of a couple times where uh, I've thought about quitting. Um, I... My company is debt-free, so um, it's been eight years since I started making jackets, and I've just kept putting the money back into Mm -hmm. the business, and it's slowly grown. Uh, But there was uh, one time early on, I wanted to try to uh, be at the Cherry Creek Sneak, like, post-race party, and that was a big race for me. And the funny thing is, like, races cost so much money to be at as, as a vendor, um, way more than flea markets, mm-hmm. you know, it's, um, and, and you're, you only get you know, two or three hours there and it's so much more money. Um, so it was a huge risk. And one thing I never wanted to do was to, uh, borrow money from our family, like personally. Um, but I was really sure that if I made it to the Cherry Creek sneak, like I would do well and, and it'd be fine and I could pay us back. I was really certain. Um, so I borrowed a thousand dollars to do the post-race party, uh, at the end of the race and have like my tent with my jackets there. And, um, it just dumped rain. It dumped <laughs> oh, rain. No. I mean, there was a, oh man. It the was, weather for that race is always horrible. It's always horrible. Um, I've heard I've only done it the one time. <laughs> so that's one for yeah, one. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's in April, so you know, there's a good chance that it won't be great, but it was, there was a river going down, you know, the street and, uh, I had bought all of this, um, like hot red suplex, uh, and I wrapped my tent in it and, um, it was kind of like keeping some of the water out, but there was so much water that this brand new fabric started to bleed onto my jackets. It was like red dye going onto the edge of my jackets. And, um, this is what's so crazy. It just dumped rain. And I thought for sure, like, okay, the ship is going down. (laughs) You know, um, this is a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. But no kidding. Um, for some reason there were 10 women who saw the vision and they were drenched, but they were not intimidated and they tried on jackets in the rain. You know, for some reason they caught the vision and everyone was freezing. I sold those jackets and it was so encouraging to me. I paid our family back for, you know, my, my uh, booth fee, maybe pocketed 400. Mm -hmm. Um, And it made me realize like, wow, in those conditions, if women will buy jackets in those conditions, then uh, we should keep keep going. <laughs> but uh, you know, the first 
hour or so and setting up when it was just starting to rain. <laughs> I thought, oh man, we're we're through. And then the other time uh, I thought this is the end of the line was just when it seemed like it was too much for my family. I have young kids and I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm still yeah. not technically full-time. I sew two days a week. And my mom watches the kids. And um, so my parents moved from Bend, Oregon here. Um, they followed us here because I'm the only one in my family with kids. So I've got a winner. Corner. Yeah, winner, winner. <laughs> so um, my mom watched my kids. Uh, they didn't go to preschool. I was just at home with them, teaching them and stuff. Um, but it just seemed like it wasn't working for my mom. And it just wasn't working. You know, sometimes it's hard to work with family members and expectations are different. Sure. And I had never, you know, worked with family members on in any capacity at a job. And we had to really communicate about some stuff. Um, but I thought this isn't working. And if she can't watch my kids like that, that's the business because, um, I only produce jackets on those two days and it won't happen otherwise. Um, but just through communication, we worked it out. So, I mean, I, I'm still here because my mom is still working for me. And then not only did she watch my kids. She, well, she still watches one of them and the other one's old enough. She's in school, but now she's a personal assistant helping me on other days too. And she's employee number one. So I think, uh, you know, things can get rocky when you're in the business with partners and it's more complex if it's your family members. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure it is. Yeah. Um, going back to the Cherry Creek snake, do you still do trade shows? Do you find those effective? Um, yeah, I or, do. or what's your uh, primary vehicle for exposure? Uh, yeah, my, my big ones are, I think, um, I do two or three big races, like race expos a year. Um, so, uh, the Boulder Boulder, the rock and roll or the hot chocolate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great if they're indoors. I've learned that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've also learned that red dye comes out of uh, polyester jackets oh, good. just fine. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so that was a good learning experience. Um, so I, I do a few big races and then usually a couple smaller ones. Um, and like the dam run is basically in my backyard. Um, so I always try to do that. And then I do like the Denver flea and the horseshoe market. I've always done the horseshoe market from their early, early days. And I don't flea markets in Denver. It's like a golden age of flea markets in hmm. Denver and there's so many good ones starting to be maybe too many of them. Um, but it's been a great time to be in Denver as a small business. If you're looking to sell at like flea markets and stuff, cause they're great options. So at the flea markets, is mm-hmm. it new stock? Is it, it's brand new jackets? Yeah. And then do you sell at MSRP at the flea markets? Uh, what do you mean? Or do, is it the same price as your website? Like Oh, yeah. Sometimes um, at a flea market, you can haggle a little okay. bit more. If someone if someone says to me, like, you know, can you do a two-for-one or whatever? Or, or, or can you do a deal if we buy two? Because a lot of times I'll get couples. Sure. And they each want to get one. And it's frequently I'm asked, uh, can you do a little bit of a discount? It's easy to do that at a flea market. Yeah. Yeah. And I love meeting people. I mean, a lot of design decisions come from seeing people at flea markets and hearing their comments. And um, it's so helpful to to 
own a company, be there right in front of the clients and just hear, just hear their dialogue. I mean, that's the great thing about being small. I can just go home and sew one like they were describing, you know, or whatever. Um, And I don't always take everyone's ideas, but if I start to hear things two or three times, it's like, okay, let's really think about this. So, so I haven't been to a flea market in, if not ever, it's been a very, very long time. Okay. So it sounds like it's, there's a lot of makers, a lot of entrepreneurs there. Is that correct? Because I'm curious about it. it Yeah. Viable opportunity for me as well. Oh yeah. You know, and uh, you know, Colorado people, they get gear, they get garment gear, Okay. you know? And the thing about it is at uh, a flea market, if you're in, if you're in the industry of making um, outdoor gear, you know, most people at a flea market, they're making um, art or um, candles or jewelry uh, or they're finding vintage objects. You'll just stick out, you know, if you're making, producing gear in town that they can go use on the weekend. It's not something for their home. It's something for them. Sure. And uh, it's something that is practical and local and they've never heard of me, you know? So it's a win for sure. I've never encountered someone else making original running jackets. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I probably will someday. (laughs) A good idea is a good idea. Yeah. The word will get out. Yeah. Well, that's just my own ignorance. I thought a flea market was more selling used tools and car parts and stuff like that. So I'm, Oh, thankful that you turned my opinion around because it sounds like a great way to get it's great hyper local exposure, sales, and feedback. Absolutely. It's awesome. Plus, it's fun. I mean, a lot of the flea markets there are all kinds of. I mean, there's drinks, there's music, live music. It's it's all new goods. I, well, there are vintage dealers, um, but yeah, it's great. You should Excellent. check it out. All right, mm-hmm. I will. Yeah. What are some of the good ones that you like? What are some of the best ones you found? Uh, the Denver Flea is okay. real experimental. I mean, they will try new things. They were at Union Station four weekends uh, from Thanksgiving to Christmas. They were outside. They modeled their market like a European Christmas market. They had live music. They had drinks. They had they decorated to the hilt. They had 24-hour security so people could leave their goods there and just oh, walk at the end of the huge. day. I mean... <clears throat> It's back-breaking work to, you know, set up at a race or a show in the morning, be on your feet all day, talking to people all day, (laughs) and then pack up and, you know, tear down. But if you can leave it overnight, that's money, you know, and the the Denver Fleet did a great job. Um, The Horseshoe Market is excellent, is definitely the best value Hmm. um, for vendors. Their price is so good. Um, it's a one day thing, so it's pretty simple. And the, for some reason, the dates they choose, the weather always seems to cooperate. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I've lugged my fair share of 10 by 10 pop-ups over my bike industry career. That's the worst. The first thing up, last thing down, rolling that thing. (laughs) It's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. It's exhausting. I love meeting with people too. I still mm-hmm. try to call everybody that places an order and just oh. leave them a voicemail and say thank you. Oh, that's cool. And, wow. <clears throat> and hear their stories. Yeah. And it's been a guy who's had uh, open heart surgery. There's a guy oh. who was a writer in California. And it's just 
connecting with a real person and mm-hmm. making them feel that it's a company that there is a human being behind it that you know cares if they've ordered something yeah mm-hmm. wow that's really cool that's I try. really personal i try yeah <laughs> that's great yeah, yeah. well i don't have <clears throat> my kids are older but i don't have a i've got a day job and mm-hmm. and podcast and friends and everything else and so it's mm-hmm. it's still very very important so i try to make time to do it yeah it can always be better yeah yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um well what's next what do you have a, a roadmap for the next couple of years or it sounds like it's mm-hmm. going very very well yeah i mean um i try not to have too firm a grip on things um you know i i don't want uh my zeal for my business to replace things that I want on the top priority slot, you know, in my life and my family, my marriage is up there. So if, if for some reason, uh, something unforeseen happens with that and it needs, my family needs more attention or my marriage needs more attention, like, uh, that would change things. So I try not to have too firm a grip, but, um, I, I'm really excited where it's going. Um, it's just been really slow growth and I'm really patient. Like, um, my girls are just getting to school age. So every year I'm given a little bit more time, a little bit more time to work on the business. And in two years, uh, I'll have two kids in school and I will technically be full time. Um, I haven't wanted to take out a loan or anything because I'm not all in yet. And I don't want to do that until I'm all in, but that's coming up, (laughs) you know, that um, that time in life is coming up where I will be all in. It will be all day. And it will be interesting to see what happens that year. Um, immediately, um, next week I'm having another 100 um, windbreakers made. But one thing everyone asked last year when they would walk up and look at my windbreakers is, are these waterproof? And I would say, no, they're sunproof. They're windproof. They're great. Most of the time in Colorado, you don't need it. But just hearing people ask, is it waterproof? Sure. So this uh, new windbreaker 2.0 is going into production hopefully next week. Um, It's a suplex, so it's water resistant. Um, And I'm really excited about that new model. Um, And then I'm coming up on 700 original jackets. I'm I'm definitely ramping up uh, my production because I've hired a few people to do some piecework for me on the jackets. Um, not the designing, but some of the finishing and they're great people. I'm so thankful that they kind of came out of the woodwork and, uh, um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I think there's something special about <clears throat> fabric people. I mean, like mm-hmm. Bill and I've met some like yourself and other handful of people that are doing socks or gloves and mm-hmm. there's, Maybe because we'd be friends anyway, but there there's a connection I have with them mm-hmm. that it's just this person's a little bit more friendly, a little bit more different, or just mm-hmm. maybe stands out mm-hmm. because of that commonality. And I don't know if yeah. it's the fabric connection or the running connection, but yeah, it just seems that when I meet somebody, an entrepreneur, and they're doing soft goods, some apparel, yeah. We hit it off immediately, and I don't That's know funny. what the connection is, but it's fun to explore. Yeah, sure. I've had that with a few people, too, that I can think of locally. And you, of course. Um, yeah, maybe it's a fabric thing. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it is. 
I maybe it's we think about the same set of questions and it's yeah. easy to go there. Yeah. Yeah. I should oh go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No. I, I wanted <clears throat> to add too. Um one thing that I've learned uh by flirting with some wholesale type things with running stores. Um I you know, I've had my jackets carried in some running stores here and there. And one thing that I've learned is that um I'm probably going to need to open up my own <laughs> someday. Really? Yeah, because um, if you think about what I'm doing, it's like I'm making these original jackets. There's a lot of hours behind them. I'm getting faster at them, no doubt. They used to take me 10 hours, and now it's five. And then now it's even less because I have some people who are finishing them. But um, basically, I have the wholesale price online. You know, what you see online is basically the wholesale price. And Denver can't really stomach a $400 jacket. There are places that can in Colorado. There are places that can in the United States, of course. But um, not so much here. And uh, that's okay. But I think what it means is I'm going to have to open up probably like the funkiest, craziest running store you've ever been in. Where it's mostly my jackets, some shoes that I really like, some literature for running that I really like, some um you know, some fuel, but it's basically kind of a, kind of like this room, kind of funky and they're jackets and I'm making them in the back and you've never been in a running store like it before. I think that's kind of my vision. That, so, yeah, more of a lifestyle running. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I mean, certainly my jackets are, um, they're built with function in mind, but, um, you know, they're for an everyday runner. So. Yeah, I'm curious about your path to brick and mortar retail because mm -hmm. I started the warm front in bike shops because I had the connections. Mm. But what I noticed was I had to invoice. There were terms. Mm -hmm. I had to <clears throat> train the sales staff, which in the bike shop, service is first, bike sales is second, then it's all the other sales. And so I got lost mm. in the the sea of arm warmers and all that. Yeah, and yeah. it's fascinating to hear your perspective on retail because mm -hmm. I mean, would it be safe to say you're finding you're not really fitting in a traditional running store because of your design aesthetic? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's disappointing when you go in and you see a jacket that you love and then, and you're in a store that normally carries extra small, small, medium, large. And you turn around and you ask the clerk, where's the small one of these? Or where's the large one of these? I want, I need this in a large. And they say, it's an original. We don't have it. That's disappointing. And so that's the battle. You know, if people um, bring in my jackets to their running store, I could do a variation on a theme. I could do, you know, four red ones, but they're not going to be the same. That's what makes my company special. But mm -hmm. it's also a curse. Because they're disappointment, uh, which is part of the reason why I've started making custom jackets and taking those orders. I used to be afraid of that, kind of like the zippers. And I had a few bad experiences where I'd be 20 hours into someone's custom fit jacket and they were still going to pay me 95, you know. Oh, and so like you, you can't, you know, you start to wonder what you're doing with your life. <laughs> um <laughs> but, um, you know, I stre I've streamlined the process of my custom jackets and it's rewarding to work with someone on a jacket that they're going to love. They're going to love. 
but it's disappointing to walk into a store and be told we don't have this this size for you. So, yeah. <laughs> so when you say custom, is it the mm-hmm. fit or the design? Oh, see, good question. Um, I used to think custom was fit. And so I used to try to uh, offer people the option of doing a custom jacket. And, um, you know, people have different expectations for that. And some people would say, well, this arm's half an inch longer than this arm. And it's a little <laughs> tight here. Can we take it out? Now it's uh, too baggy. Can we take it in? And, you know, I would be doing like these minute alterations of fit. And um, that's when you get into it and you're 20 hours in and they're still p- paying the same price. But with my custom jacket that I offer now, the custom part is the function. The custom part is that you look all at all my swatches of what I have in stock and you get to pick. So you're checking. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you're checking the boxes. These are the functions you want. Uh, you want a hood not or not. Um, you know, do you want the reflective angling this way or that way? You have a say in all that, but you're still going to just check extra small, small, medium, large, or extra large. And I don't get into the mechanics of a custom fit because that's where you get really pricey clothes. Okay. Yeah. So so my custom jackets, I, I, I call it the choose your own adventure jacket. I love that. Yeah, and um, it's two twenty five with free delivery, and I'll meet you for coffee. We'll go over some sketches. Um, like I have a a worksheet that you fill out, and we'll look at my fabrics. You can fill them. It's important to be able to fill the fabrics. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and uh, and we'll go from there. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and I like your philosophy about not going into debt, and I've mm-hmm. seen and heard both. Uh, publicized and in-person entrepreneurs that mm-hmm. take a bankroll mm-hmm. and they're in the hole before they've sold one unit. Mm-hmm. And I'm very financially conservative with mm-hmm. this company. Yeah. Um, yeah. Up until two years ago, I didn't even have business cards. I didn't see the need wow. to spend the money. Yeah. And I equate <laughs> things in terms of how many units am I going to have to sell <clears throat> to pay for X? Tent topper, car wrap, business cards, whatever. And mm-hmm. it goes to materials and product first. Mm-hmm. And then the publicity is as cheap as I can get it. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree with you. You have to be patient though with those limitations, but I do yes. think it pays off and we sleep well, I'm sure. Or at least <laughs> if we're not sleeping, it's for some other reason. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't stress if I wake up and I don't have a, an order email. It's a pleasant right. reward, but right. I don't, you know, well, what happened? You know, to, I'm curious, but I'm not mm. stressed that, because I don't carry inventory. Mm. Linda mm. has rolls of fabric yeah. and collars and Velcro, and that's, great. that's paid for, but I pay the labor cost when she makes mm-hmm. it, and so it, they just kind of sit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, w- I would hate to have the normal stresses of life, you know, family, kids, job, mortgage, and then also... Yeah clearing out inventory so that's that is a powerful piece for a a startup yeah and also it's kind of um it's a good test to see if you can do it to you know because you can take out the money and see if you can do it but if you can do it without taking the money out first um you'll see what your market likes you'll learn you know and then there you know every business has a different uh 
season. You know, there are different seasons to businesses. And I think when the season comes where I need a bank loan or I need investors, I've got my product honed. And I've also got the way I talk about it honed. And I also know where all the money's been going. And uh, I've been really careful. So That's powerful, too, mm-hmm. because I've seen people that have, you mentioned very, very early on in the conversation, building your brand. Mm-hmm. They have a smoke and mirrors kind of thing about what the brand is. Mm-hmm. And if they were cornered by an investor, like, hey, what's your margins? What's the, all this mm-hmm. other stuff? Mm-hmm. And maybe the debt and the product hasn't been battle tested. And that's mm-hmm. what I like hearing about the mm-hmm. Vander Jackets is that you have no ego tied with it. You want it to be the best it can, mm-hmm. but it's been trial by fire. You've sold 700 of these. That speaks mm-hmm. volumes. Mm-hmm. And it happened when you were ready to put in the effort. And yeah. that, it's just a really fascinating story to hear that you're just going to grind this out and where it is is okay. Mm. But you have this amazing confidence with no arrogance whatsoever. That it's just... <laughs> You've worked hard at this, mm-hmm. and that's the way it usually works is with mm-hmm. simple, hard, grind-out work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I've thought about, too, is if if the business failed, what would I do with my time? I think I would still be making jackets. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would. Well, I would be making uh, a lot of jackets for myself, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, I love it, so it's like you might as well keep going, you know, I, I might as well keep going at it. So, yeah. The passion shows. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the creativity and the design is just, you, you can mm. tell, I can tell that this matters to somebody mm. and it's real and it's, it's cool. And so I'm glad I picked up that magazine. That was oh, great yeah, to connect. Oh yeah, me too. I have to tell you one other story. The first... Yeah, as many as you want. Okay. <laughs> The first men's jacket I ever sold was at uh, the Colorado Marathon post-race event. Uh, a couple came and they each bought a jacket. And like five days later, I got this letter handwritten in the mail. And it said, it started with, Dear Sarah, this is the worst running jacket I've ever bought. And then there was, <laughs> it was handwritten like, you know, normal size piece of paper filled with Y. And it was really fascinating because I, you know, it definitely made me catch my breath, you know, but then it was kind of like, now what kind of person would like take the time to like draft out a handwritten letter about why the design failed on every point, you know, why this jacket failed to meet expectations and was such a disappointment and really like articulate that and write that out. And, um, I had to just kind of sit there and think about it. Well, walk away, come back to it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, I'm human and that definitely stung, but, um, this person really gave a, gave me a gift by walking through every feature and why it wasn't that great and why they felt so disappointed that at the time, so I think it was $150. And um, 
um, I just, since that point in time, I've really tried to treat every disappointed customer as a real opportunity for myself and for the customer. It's an opportunity for both of us because uh, I think if you get too big, it's hard to um, make someone feel special and valued. But as a small company, you can still do it. And when someone's really disappointed, you have the most opportunity to change them into really excited. (laughs) And usually what changes it is if um, you acknowledge why they're disappointed, Mm -hmm. you think about it, um, and then really like take your hands off of the thing. I ended up um, sending him a check for his jacket of what he paid thanked him for the letter. I said, you know, I'm going to be referencing this in my design, which was so valuable to me. Um, How many points did you take that you felt were actual improvements? Um, you know, he said about five different things okay. and I thought four of them were legit. And the fifth one was just like, well, this person needs to just like, let it go. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it took a week to like process through and be like, what is legitimate here? And what is actually maybe this person is just a preference, but in, you know, in general, people wouldn't care. Um, one, like, for example, he said, um, I remember that he said the zipper would jangle when he ran. Okay. Okay. And it's like, yeah, that's a little annoying, but I think a lot of people that wouldn't, that wouldn't be a deal breaker for them. A lot of people are listening to a podcast and they can't even hear their zipper jangling. Um, A lot of people would rather pay for the zippers I put in than 20 extra dollars on the jacket for a high-tech zipper that like snaps down. And that's what I could afford. I could afford the cheaper zipper. So I had to let that one go. I just really, I couldn't afford the more expensive zipper. And then the other uh, four things he mentioned, it was like, well, I can just draw the pattern different. I can just... I can just refine this. And it was so valuable. It was worth the $150. You know, it was like $150 worth of advice on my men's design. Sure. And it was really honest. I sent him a check and I said, please keep your jacket for fashion. And here's a check. And since then, I've always thought like, if someone's really unhappy, you have a real opportunity. (laughs) Um, And sometimes that's really hard to take. (laughs) (laughs) and you know you're not going to reach everyone like you have to have good judgment and some people are just not your people (laughs) (laughs) that's right yeah but anyway (laughs) here's the door sir yeah party's over (laughs) yeah (laughs) a lady came into my booth and she was so great she's like i always look at your jackets but i never get one and i said well what are you looking for in the jacket that you don't see and she said well more like a leather bomber (laughs) And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but that would be cool. <laughs> but, you know, you, you just have to decide who you let go. <laughs> do you think she does that at restaurants? Do you think she goes into a restaurant <laughs> and she's at, uh, you know, pizza joint? Going, you know what make this place perfect? Steak. I yeah. want some steak. Y'all right, got some right, steak? <laughs> right. There's some humor in that. You just got to <clears> laugh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, it's just another example of you having, um, being human, but no ego tied with that. You could take that as a lesson that was, 
I may completely disagree with this person, but mm-hmm. what are they trying to tell me? Yeah. And at least evaluate it in a vacuum and see if it applies mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. being objective and seeing if it, it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I had a customer two months ago. He wanted a refund and I was like, I called him up. <clears throat> Does it not fit? Do you not yeah. like it? Mm-hmm. And I think he maybe thought it was more of your uh, kimono design. I wondered oh. if he thought it, there was a front and a back. Oh. And mm-hmm. he didn't like the neck. He didn't like something else. <clears throat> and so here's your refund. Mm-hmm. Uh, send him a call tag. He'd already sent it back. Mm-hmm. And, I, and he kept mentioning this thing that he really liked. I was like, yeah, show me what that is. If I can improve mine by taking a look at what you like. Sure. And he sent me this um, wool type undershirt that 15 years old. So it was a picture of him wearing it, kind of like a selfie. Okay. <clears throat> but it was a base layer back when that was not even a term, probably from yeah, 12, sure. 15 years ago. Okay. Made out of wool and it was, I uh, couldn't even tell what had worn away and what was actually full yeah. structure. But Okay. That would not work for most people. <laughs> no, and that's what he wanted. Yeah. And there were design elements that defined my product that I could not remove to make what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And I think at the end of the day, he was he was very, very nice the whole time, but I think mm-hmm. he was just a very um, frugal person that knew exactly what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And clearly he kept this way past the point of usefulness, but mm-hmm. in his mind, the functionality is more important than anything. Mm-hmm. And he talked about that okay I, mm-hmm. I can't do that but here's mm-hmm. your money and I'd rather pay back the money than have somebody upset yeah absolutely absolutely I'm not gonna talk him into liking it hey life's right. too short you don't like it cool it's fine right right I never regret uh <laughs> giving someone their money back you yeah. know like uh I know how bad it feels when you're disappointed with a product and to feel helpless Right. Yeah. Like there's not really anyone I could call or no one can take this back. And I just feel scammed. You know, <laughs> uh, That's a bad feeling. I don't ever want anyone to feel like that. You know, neither do you. Yeah. That's tough though. Can't please them all. You can't. You can't. <laughs> I know. Yeah. This has been great. It, yeah. I, I just, I have really enjoyed your perspective and, uh, getting to know you and again the the jackets are beautiful i'll post images and links and all that oh, cool. but, um, so where Thanks, can man. where can people find you on the interwebs and all that yeah definitely i love instagram um at vanderjacket and then vanderjacket.com is my website um i will have uh my spring line is coming out april 12th and that will be on Pearl Street at Common Threads. It's a boutique there, and they're going to have a trunk shop. show. I do, too. <laughs> I do, too. Um, they're going to have a trunk show for me, and um, we're opening there, my spring line. Um, and I'll update my events page as it shakes down, but I don't have a lot up there right now starting 2019. I will. Okay. So, yeah. Well, Sarah Vandernoot, thank you so much. Yeah. This has been just been enjoyable. Great. appreciate it. I, I love talking with you, Matt. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Hey there, this is Matt. Thank you for listening. This podcast is now supported by QGradeCoffee.com. 
And this is not a shop. It's not a coffee blend. This is actually an experience by uh, my friend Kevin. And uh, you'll hear all about this in an upcoming episode. I went through an extensive flavor profile. And what that is, is a questionnaire and a tasting of fruits and vegetables and even several kinds of chocolate, which I loved to help me determine the flavor, the roast, even the region of coffee that suits the things that I like to eat and the flavors that I enjoy. And I'm so excited that uh, I know how to make a great and a legitimately great cup of coffee using Q-grade coffee's techniques. And it's not pretentious. It's not snobby. There's coffee education and there's techniques to it. And even if you have just a single cup of coffee in the morning, what you'll learn and experience is uh, eye-opening. And it's just a fun experience. So if you like cheeses and wines and beers, you have to go through this with coffee. And it's more than just a tasting. It literally gives you the flavors and the roast that you enjoy. And I, I can't say it enough. You won't know what you've been missing until you go through a Q-grade coffee profiling. So check them out at qgradecoffee.com.